Well, good afternoon, Hellos Church. I'm glad you are here today. My name is Andrew. I serve as one of the pastors here and have the privilege of leading us through our study of the scriptures tonight. So let me invite you to grab your Bibles if you have one and open up to Ephesians chapter 6, to the passage that was just read for us. Ephesians chapter 6. And as you're finding your way there, I'm going to voice a prayer for us before we dive in. Heavenly Father, would you give grace to us as we open our Bibles? Would you open up our eyes to see beauty? In its pages. God, would you open up our hearts to receive your word this afternoon? And, and Holy Spirit, would you please instruct us? Would you please train us? Would you please draw our attention to the Savior whom we need, not only in our relationship with you, but we need in our relationship with each other, and we need in our relationship with our friends, with our spouses, Father, and as we come to this text today, we especially need in relationship to our kids. And so, Lord, would you please minister to us this afternoon? Would you give us perspective, give us grace as we consider what grace in parenting is all about? Lord, we ask and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. It was a guy by the name of Dr. Chuck Quarles. He was a professor at New Orleans Baptist Theological Seminary, a place where I uh, got my PhD several years ago. And, and he shared a story that has haunted me ever since I heard it, a story of the moment he met one of his heroes in the faith. This pronounced, this profound scholar in the Christian world, a remarkable academic who had written numerous commentaries and numerous reference books that serve churches and Christians all over the world, and Dr. Quarles had a chance to meet him, and, and if I were to share his name with you, many of you would know who it is, but I'm going to hold off on that, because when he met his mentor, not his mentor, but when he met his hero, he walked up to him and asked him this question. He said, I am amazed by your work. How did you manage to be so prolific? And then the scholar mumbled under his breath. He said, I sacrificed my son. Now, Dr. Quarles was stunned by his words. He thought that he misunderstood what he said, so he said, I'm, I'm sorry, what did you say? Could, could you repeat that? And the scholar grew angry, and his countenance began to harden, and he said, you heard me. I said, I sacrificed my son. He went on to say that he had been so driven to research and to write and to publish and to make a name for himself in the academic world that he neglected his family. And so his son essentially grew up a stranger, estranged to his father. And at that point in time, his son was living without a house on one of America's biggest cities' streets. And he was engaged in this conversation with Dr. Quarles, and Dr. Quarles was trying to do what many nice Christians do when we hear people kind of feeling guilty or feeling convicted or feeling like they've messed something up. And he tried to comfort him. I'm sure it wasn't your fault. I'm, I'm, sure, I'm sure you didn't mean to. And then Dr., uh, the, the scholar re responded. He said, don't you try to console me. He said, yes, I did that. And even though people seem to be amazed by my seem to be amazed by my productivity as a scholar. The fact is I would give up every one of those books and far, far more just to have my son back. He then looked across the table straight into Dr. Quarles' eyes, and he said, just in case you want to walk in my footsteps, know that I'm praying that you don't. And Dr. Quarles had this moment of illumination in his soul where he 
was haunted by that conversation and those words and the exchange that went down. And he returned home and he began to confess his sins to his wife and confess his sins to his children. He began to adjust his passions and his priorities. His ambitions began to uh, be tweaked in response to that moment. And as Dr. Quarles was haunted, no doubt, by those words, I confess to you this evening that as I think about that conversation and I remember hearing that story, that that is a conversation that haunts me too. That it haunts me when I think about the role that I have in the life of my kids as I am a father of three children. I have my daughter Delaney who is eight, my son Asher who is four, and my son Adeline who is three. And I have a unique role to play in their lives, a role that quite frankly no one else can play in this life as long as I am alive and as long as I am around. I have a unique responsibility to play in their lives. And it's not just me, by God's grace, my wife Kim and their mother is involved and engaged and she too carries this responsibility to, she too has this role of raising these little ones in the instruction and in the training of the Lord. It's a remarkable thing to think about, the influence that a parent has. Many of you know this from experience, that your parents leave an indelible impact on your life either for good or for ill, in both positive ways and in negative ways. Parental influence is a powerful thing. And God has designed parental influence to be paramount in the spiritual formation of the next of each generation. That he's designed parental influence to be the paramount influence in laying the foundations of faith, laying the foundations of life in relationship with a God who created them. He has entrusted parents and influencers of children with that remarkable, remarkable responsibility. And this is what's being cued into here in Ephesians chapter 6 as Paul takes up the topic of parenting and he zeroes in on what parenting is all about. Now, when Kim and I were uh, getting ready to transition to Seattle to begin the process of starting the Hallows Church back in uh, 2010, 2011, we were en route to relocating our lives, believing that the Lord was calling us to come alongside the voice of the gospel in this city and complement it and be a part of what he was doing here in Seattle. And we were en route to doing that. And it turned out about four months before we got in our car and drove across country to relocate, she was pregnant. And it surprised us, and we were excited, and we were looking forward to welcoming this child into the world, who would, who's now Delaney, that many of you know. And, but what surprised us was how some people responded to the fact that she got pregnant. Because there were some people in our lives who loved us, who cared for us, who loved Jesus, who followed Jesus. But when they learned that Kim was pregnant, they kind of assumed that we would either delay moving to Seattle, or we would choose not to move in this direction altogether. And they assumed that with the birth of the child would kind of slow us down because they thought that, you know, why wouldn't we want to raise her close to grandparents? Why wouldn't we want to raise her close to uncles and aunts and cousins and in that type of environment? And now I know that many people are raised close to family, and it's a great, remarkable thing if that's the journey the Lord leads you on. But our path laid elsewhere. God had impressed upon our heart a calling to start a new church in the city and so we were en route to that direction. And as we were praying through kind of the pushback we were getting and some of the alternatives that people were raising to our minds and our, and our hearts, we, we found the Lord just impressing one truth upon us. 
one truth that he impressed upon our heart that really kind of governs and guides our entire perspective and our entire approach to this thing called parenting. It's a, it's a truth that I think is echoed over and over and over again all throughout the scriptures, and it relates to parenting, but I think it could be broadened to all kinds of things that God gives us in this life and in this world. But it was this one truth that the Lord just impressed upon our souls. He said, I want you to know that children are gifts to be stewarded. They are not gods to be served. That children are gifts to be stewarded. They are not gods to be served. And I'm convinced that had we decided to change our course and not follow Jesus to Seattle, I believe we would not have received Delaney as a gift to be stewarded in our lives. I believe we would have received her and treated her as a God to be served. You see, children are given to families. Children are given to people in this world. And for the Christian household and the Christian family, children are given to join a family in the journey of following Jesus. They are not given to hijack the journey. They are not given to detour the journey. They are given to join the family in the family's desire and calling to follow Jesus. And the way a mom or a dad or the way parents can love their kids best is by following Jesus. And parents love their kids the worst when they decide instead to follow their kids. When they decide to follow their children, that's when things get Sideways. Let me give you a hypothetical scenario that might uh, kind of paint a picture of what uh, that might look like in someone's life who may have a kid or have kids. Let's just imagine a scenario where you're, you have a child, God has gifted you with a child, and your child loves soccer. Not only does your child love soccer, your child is gifted at soccer. He or she eats, sleeps, and breathes soccer. And you, as a loving, caring parent, you want to fan into flame uh, their passion for soccer because you know that it makes them happy. And the fo- you, you, it's the focus of their dreams, and you believe your role as a parent is to help your children fulfill their dreams. And so you plug them into club soccer. You get them involved in different travel teams. And before long, your kid gets a little bit older, and they find themselves Uh, their time and their attention really called upon for all sorts of soccer games and all sorts of soccer teams. And eventually you were, every weekend is taken up. Every weekend is, is filled up with soccer activities. Now, you don't want to interrupt the source of your kid's joy and dreams. And so you just succumb to the schedule. You allow soccer to dictate the rhythms and the routines of your family. And, and soon after that, you stop attending church altogether and you're no longer looking for ways to plug in and meaningful ways and discernible ways with a family of faith, with the church of Jesus. And your weekends are so busy that uh, you find yourself too tired to do anything really during the week. And so when a weeknight opportunity comes around, you, you know that, well, you've got so much going on on the weekends, you can't give an evening to, say, gathering with God's people or plugging into some type of community to identify with uh, the family of faith and to engage in the activities of faith. And so you just refrain and And before you tell yourself at that time that it's just a season, it's just a season, it's going to pass. But if you tell yourself that and you look at how kids' sports go in our culture and in our climate, you know those seasons never end. Those seasons are constant. They are unending. They constantly happen. And so before too long, you are no longer part of a church in any meaningful sense. You're no longer part of the things of God and 
terms of your gospel faith in any meaningful, discernible sense. And if that scenario kind of unfolds before you would have, before you realize it, you would have centered your life on your child's love for soccer. You would not have centered their life on the Savior's love for your child. There's a big difference between centering your life around the things that your kids love and centering your kids' lives around the Savior who loves them. There's a big difference between those two. And if you're not careful, you will exchange your stewardship for a type of slavery. You will replace a gift. You will turn a gift into a God, not following Jesus. You will follow your child. That's how this type of thing can happen. And so we want to think about this as not only parents among us, but also future parents as you get ready to move in that direction, if that's what the Lord has for you. We also want to think about this in terms of our faith family as a whole and the responsibility we all have to support the raising of kids and to help the next generation come to an understanding of who Jesus is and what Jesus is about. We want to think in terms of stewardship. That children are gifts to be stewarded. They are not gods to be served. And this idea of stewardship shows up in verse 4 of Ephesians 6. If you look at the very end of that text, we're told to bring them, that is the children, in your midst, in your care, in your influence. Bring children up in the training and instruction of the world, of the Lord. And so we're cued into kind of the goal of raising kids right there. We are to raise them in a particular way, with a particular passion, with a particular priority, instruction and training in or of the Lord. Now, when you look at verse 4, you begin to see how you, you can start engaging in a little process of elimination and realize, okay, what is the ultimate goal of parenting? What goal are you trying to achieve in parenting? Or what goal are you trying to achieve when you are influencing the next generation in the directions of Jesus? And you can start writing some things off the list. And you can start breathing a little bit easier because it kind of simplifies things because the ultimate goal of parenting is not necessarily to give our kids the best education. The ultimate goal of parenting is not necessarily to help them excel athletically. The ultimate goal in parenting is not necessarily to help them integrate socially so that they know how to make friends and engage in community dynamics. That's not the ultimate goal of parenting. We can say the ultimate goal of parenting is not necessarily to protect them from challenges or difficulties or hard things. It's not your ultimate goal as an influencer of the next generation to protect them from sadness or to protect them from failure. Or to protect them from what might be called boredom. I, I kind of like this one because as a parent, I kind of like it when my kids are bored sometimes. Uh, I tell Delaney when she complains about being bored, hey, it's good to be bored. I want you to learn how to be bored because if you can't just be bored, you're, you're going to have a long, hard time living in a world that is oftentimes mundane. And there's a lot of boring, boring stretches of life in this world. And so I like to actually, I think it's good parenting to carve out some intentional time for your kids to just be bored. And so I try to do that because that's not my ultimate goal is not to protect them from boredom or to protect them from any other thing that you might consider negative or hard or difficult. The ultimate goal of parenting is not even necessarily to help them develop morals. It's not even necessarily to help them become a moral or virtuous person. That's not the ultimate goal of parenting. In fact, you can succeed at every one of those and not be a faithful steward of what God has given you. 
You can help your kid in all of those ways. You can protect them in all of those ways and yet not faithfully steward the role that God has given you to steward. I love what Dietrich Bonhoeffer said. I believe he is right when he says that it is from God that parents receive their children and it is to God that they should leave them. You want to know what parenting, what influencing the next generation is all about? There it is. They, kids come from God and it is to God that we should lead them. That's our stewardship. That's our goal. That's our ambition. We want to raise little ones in the instruction and the knowledge of the Lord so that they would come to know the God who made them and come to enjoy the God who loves them. That's our goal. That's our ambition. That's our ultimate aim in parenting and in ministry to the next generation. And as a, as a, as a father of three, it's hitting me more and more every day just how long the days can be when you have young kids and these days can be really, really long. But while days are really, really long, I'm realizing how short the years are. It hit me like a ton of bricks yesterday when I thought Delaney is eight. So that means she will soon be nine. And by uh, traditional patterns where 18 was kind of the goal, she's halfway there. I know 18 is not really the goalpost anymore. It's been pushed back a little bit. It's not mid-20s, maybe in 30s. But, but she, she's, she, she's growing there. And and I have a, I'm losing time. And so I began to really wrestle with, am I maximizing the moments that I have with her? Am I stewarding, am I stewarding the gift that she is to me and the gift that she can be to the world around her? And so we want to consider this dynamic, this stewardship that we've been given. Kids come from God and we should lead kids to God. Now, the primary responsibility for this stewardship in light of this passage falls in the laps of moms and dads. It does fall in the laps of parents. This is what we were told right off in verse 4. Children, obey your parents. That's mom and dad. And then we, the fathers are called out in verse 4 for reasons that we'll see in a moment. But you begin to discover there that the responsibility for this stewardship falls heavily upon mom and dad. You see this elsewhere in Scripture. Proverbs chapter 6, verse 20. My son, keep your father's commandment and forsake not your mother's teaching. Parents, the responsibility falls on you to steward your kids in this direction. But it's not, you know that there's moments in scripture where God uses either a single mom or a single dad to do things that for the next generation, remarkable things. I think about Timothy, a guy who was raised by his mom and his grandmom, whose dad is nowhere to be seen in the scriptures. And there's this moment and. Uh, first or second Timothy, where Paul acknowledges that the spiritual foundation of his life was laid by his mom and his grandmom. So chances are Timothy didn't grow up in a home with a father, or he didn't grow up in a home with an influential father or a gospel-believing father, and yet God's grace abounded in the devotion of his mom and his grandmom who poured into him, and he found himself soon following Jesus and journeying the world with the apostle Paul, soon becoming a pastor at the church of Ephesus, the, the very location and community that this letter addresses. So the primary responsibility does fall in the laps of parents. Ideally, that would be mom and dad together working, but that's not always, that ideal is not always realized because we live in a fallen and broken world. And the good news of the gospel is that God's grace is sufficient for the single parent. God's grace is sufficient for the struggling mom or the struggling dad who feels like they're all on their own investing in the next generation. But then God's grace is sufficient when we go one step further and we say, look, yes, the primary responsibility falls in the laps of the parents. 
But understand that that primary responsibility must be supported. It must be undergirded by the church. This is where the church plays a role in the raising of the next generation so that a single mom doesn't feel like she's all alone on this. A single dad doesn't feel like he's all alone on this. A struggling married couple don't feel like they're all alone on this. No, they are plugged into the family of faith that is supporting them and encouraging them in this process. I'll show you if you look at verse verse 1. Notice what's happening. He says children, and, and the passage addresses children. Now, what's remarkable or telling about that is the way this would have worked in the first century is that Paul would have written this letter. He would have sent it to the church, and once the church received this letter from the apostle, they would have all come together like we are right now. They would have assembled together. They would have congregated together, and then someone would have opened the letter and read it aloud all in one moment, all in one sitting. And so as they're reading through the book of Ephesians, they get to this passage where the person reading the text addresses the children. What that tells us is that the children were present in the church. Children were a part of the assembly. They were being called into a level of accountability by the scriptures because the scriptures targeted them and addressed them. And so you have this dynamic that, yes, parenting The primary responsibility for it falls in the laps of moms and dads, but there is accountability in the church to rally behind parents and to support parents in the process of investing in the next generation. This is where this message becomes relevant for the vast majority of you who do not have kids. You don't have kids. Maybe you don't have any dream of having kids, but you are a part of a faith family, and in this faith family, there are lots of kids Upcoming at this retreat next weekend, we have 60 children signed up to join us next weekend at the retreat. 60 kids. That's a huge stewardship that we have. And as we own our place in the body of Christ, as we sink into the community, we find ourselves supporting one another and encouraging one another in all the roles and all the responsibilities that we have. And so you have this moment where kids are being addressed in the body because parenting or raising the next generation is a family affair. And I don't mean the immediate family. I mean the whole family of faith has a responsibility together to engage in the training and the instruction of the next generation. Now, I've been convicted about this when I think about uh, just church in general, especially church in America, because what tends to happen in churches in America is that we have so organized ourselves that I don't know if these realities flush themselves out in the ways that God intends. We so organize our churches so that we have basically silos for different demographics in the church. We have a kids ministry that is siloed off from the rest of the body. You have a youth ministry siloed off from the rest of the body. You sometimes have a college ministry siloed off from the rest of the body. And we organize ourselves in such a way that there's no spiritual cross-pollination taking place. There's no opportunity for the generations to interact and for the generations to engage one another in meaningful, life-changing kinds of ways. And so I've been convicted about this, not because I'm sad about our kids' ministry. I love our kids' ministry. I believe Mark Smith does a fantastic job leading that. I think those of you who are involved in that ministry do a wonderful job investing in the next generation. And it's a a beautiful, beautiful thing. I just don't want us to get get to a point where we have siloed our kids off from experiencing grace in the context of the whole family of faith. This means I want us to begin thinking how we can integrate 
more in some intentional ways. Now, we try to do this right now where our kids join us for the beginning of these gatherings, and then they do go for a time of study and teaching that might be more palatable for them, that they can maybe take in and digest a little more than maybe some of the things that, that we are talking about. And I think there's a place for that. I think that's beneficial. But at some point in time, and here's where I really want to challenge those of you who have kids, I want you to consider what type of rhythm or cadence you can begin introducing into your family so that maybe you're not sending your older kids away during this time. What would it look like if you kept your kids sitting next to you as we worship Jesus together and as we studied the scriptures? You might think, well, they're not going to understand anything, and that may be true, but it will give you something to talk about. Because they can ask you about what they don't understand and you're hearing the same scriptures and you're thinking about the same truths. I can catalyze conversations that could serve your parenting well. It also provides them an opportunity to see you celebrating grace in worship. They can see you expressing your passion in worship. They can see you approaching the Lord's table recognizing that, yes, you are a sinner in need of grace. And so you go to the table affirming the fact that you are like them in that regard, that you are not qualitatively superior to your kids. No, you're cut from the same existential cloth, a cloth that is ragged apart from the grace of God. And so I would encourage you to think about what type of cadence can you begin weaving into your routines to maybe have your kids be present among us as we worship on Sundays once a month, to twice a month, something along those lines. But I do think it's something you should think forward about and think forward to. Because again, you look at this pattern, and I think there's rich things that happen when the children are gathered with all of God's people and their appetites being wet to want to be with the whole body of Christ. Integration is a beautiful thing, and we need to take strides in that direction. Now, you come back to this text, and we've talked a little bit about what, kind of the what of parenting and the who of parenting, the what being uh, we are to lead our kids to the Lord, to raise them up in the instruction and training of the Lord. And then we said kind of the who, that primarily moms and dads, but then secondarily and in a supportive capacity comes the church. The church is to rally behind parents and to come underneath parents to help them along this journey. Now let's speak just a moment about kind of the how of parenting. And there are two general principles or two general thoughts that I want to give you in light of verse 4 specifically uh, as you think about whether it's parenting or you think about investing your life in the next generation by plugging into our kids' ministry or serving in some of those capacities. The first one is this. As we engage in the how, the how of parenting, we want to parent with presence, patience, and perspective. We need presence, patience, and perspective if we are going to invest fruitfully and faithfully in the next generation. Now, verse 4 calls out fathers, and we're told fathers don't stir up anger in your children. Now, the reason fathers are being keyed into here, I believe, is because fathers in the first century had absolute control over their kids. They could decide the fate of their kids, so much so that there are records that tell us dads could sell their kids into slavery without consequence. Dads could discard their children without punishment. They could leave them behind. They could exile them from the home for any type of reason. That was part of the culture of the first century. And so when Paul's about to address parenting in this text, he's He's saying, look, remember you are gospel people. And remember that you are a people who's to make God's grace visible to the watching world. This means you do everything differently. 
This means as dads, you don't take your cues from your male counterparts in the culture. No, you take your cues from the gospel of God's grace. And so fathers, don't stir your kids up to anger. Don't don't scare them. Don't frighten them. Don't discourage them. There's a parallel passage to this found in Colossians chapter 3, verse 21. Fathers, do not exasperate your children so that they won't become discouraged. Don't make them insecure by how you parent them. And the way you can do that is by parenting with presence, being attentive, parenting with patience, and parent with perspective. Know your role. Know your responsibility. Know your stewardship. Now, when we think about parenting in these ways, there's a few things that I would give to you just to think about and that might help you parent in these in these kinds of ways or invest your time in the lives of our little ones at kids' ministry or in some other context. One, when you step into that world, remember that you are dealing with kids. Check your expectations. You know, a four-year-old is not going to act like a 40-year-old. And if you expect a four-year-old to act like a 40-year-old, you're going to show a lot of impatience. You have to remember that you are dealing with kids when you are dealing with kids. But not only remember that you're dealing with kids, you... As you're engaging kids, you want to refuse to compare them to others. You don't want to give your kids the impression that they have to measure up to some other person or some other child. So you want to avoid at all cost comparing and contrasting little ones with other little ones. And so by avoiding that, you can keep yourself from stirring up anger and resentment and insecurity and discouragement within them. You also will consider how you might discipline disobedience, but not mistakes. You know, as a parent, the hardest thing for parents to do is to discipline their kids, but it's also one of the most helpful and holy things a parent can do is discipline their kids. But we have to make the distinction between disciplining disobedience and disciplining mistakes. You know, a child making a mistake is not worth disciplining. And if we are disciplining mistakes, we may be arousing anger within them, resentment within them, insecurity within them, frustration within them, discouragement within them. But if we're focusing on willful disobedience, rejecting the role that we have in their lives, refusing to do the things that we are telling them to do, those are, that's what we want to discipline. And, and when we engage in that ministry, we are doing the very thing that God does for us. If you are a child of God, you can expect to be disciplined by God over the course of your days. That God is a heavenly father. He is a holy father. He is a good father who disciplines his kids so that we might grow up, so that we might mature in our faith. And as moms and dads, we reflect that dynamic to our children by being willing to discipline defiance and disobedience and those types of things. And when you are loving your kids and you are being patient with them, when you do discipline them, they're not going to interpret that as your disapproval of them. They're not going to interpret that as your displeasure with them. No, they're going to hear it as you loving them and leading them towards the reality of God and not away from the reality of God. Other dynamics that you can consider is how you can express your approval of kids. How can you express your approval of the kids in your lives Not just approving their accomplishments, but approving of the effort they put into things. You don't want to be outcome-driven or outcome-oriented in your approval of the next generation. You want to approve effort. 
You want to approve the opportunity they have to do something they've never done before and their willingness to do it. You want to approve their boldness in doing something that might be adventurous in their little minds. You want to approve of the effort that they put into trying new things and doing new things and engaging life in a scary world to a kid. But in addition to approving of effort in those dynamics, you want to be the type of father and mother, the type of faith family that expresses affection to kids. Specifically, moms and dads, do you express affection to your kids regularly? Do you tell them that you love them? And not just verbally, do you physically demonstrate love to your kids? Do you hug them? Do you kiss them? Now, this is where the parental jurisdiction comes into play, right? This is what we want moms and dads doing. We don't want everyone doing necessarily that. But we do want you to tell our kids that you love them and that you care about them. We want you to verbalize that. But if you're a mom or a dad, I want to push you further. Don't just say it. Demonstrate it. Touch your kids. Hug your kids. Kiss your kids. Let them feel your affection in that kind of way. And as you are loving them in these ways, as you're in, interacting with them in these types of ways, I think you can, you can prevent stirring up anger in them. And if anger does arise up within them, it won't necessarily be on you. Now, one disclaimer I want to throw out there is that you can do everything right as a parent and your kid can still walk away from the faith. Your kid can still abandon the realities of Jesus and the realities of the gospel. And so there's really no perfect equation in this. This is why we need grace in the process. This is why we need encouragement in the process. And so you can, you can kill it in parenting and still and still face discouraging days when your kid's making bad decisions and going their own way and those types of things. So just throw that out there as a disclaimer. So we want to parent with presence, patience, and perspective. And the reason we want to parent these ways is because this is how God parents us. How does God the Father parent his kid? Well, he parents us with patience. He parents us with presence. And he parents us with perspective. And so we want to set our minds on the things of God, not on earthly things. We want to take our cues from who God is and what God is like, not necessarily from who Dr. Phil is and what Dr. Phil is like. We want God to give definitive shape to our understanding of parenting and influencing the next generation. And so presence, patience, and perspective become key. But then there's one other dynamic I want to leave you with tonight, and that is as you parent, I want you to parent as a disciple-making disciple of Christ. That you would parent as a disciple-making disciple of Christ. Before you are a mom, you are a disciple. Before you are a dad, you are a disciple. And as a disciple of Jesus, you are called to make disciples. And the starting point for that ministry and for that mission is your home. It is your kids. You don't leapfrog your children en route to disciple other people. No, you start ground zero with your family. And you parent as a disciple-making disciple, recognizing that before you are a parent, you are a disciple of Jesus. And that is your ultimate calling from him. And this is true of every one of us who are followers of Jesus, that we are to be disciple-making disciples. And as we invest in the lives of the little ones, what are we doing? Well, we're trying to disciple them. We want to lead them to put their faith in the Savior and to trust him always. That's our goal, not only in our families, but it's the goal in our church. 
But if we're going to do this, we're going to be disciple-making disciples as, as parents and then as a church, this means we're going to instruct our children to know the scriptures. We're going to instruct our kids to know God's word. This is pointed out in verse 4. Bring them up in the training, and here it is, instruction of the Lord. So we want to instruct our children to know God's word. Moms and dads, influencers of little ones, you must have a verbal commitment to God's word in your life. You must have a verbal commitment to God's word. You must be willing to speak the truths of God on a regular basis into the lives of your little ones. You must be committed to talking about the scriptures regularly. This is Parenting 101, according to the Bible. When you find a passage like Deuteronomy chapter 6, where God is preparing his people to be his people in the world and how they're going to be unique and set apart, and he takes some time to talk about the home and to talk about parenting. And listen to what he says in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. He says, listen, Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. These words that I'm giving you today are to be in your heart. Repeat them to your children. There it is. Verbally express God's word. Repeat them to your children. Talk about them when you sit in your house and when you walk along the road. When you are stuck in traffic, talk about the scriptures. That's what he's saying. When you lie down and when you get up, bind them as a sign on your hand and let them be a symbol on your forehead. Write them on the doorpost of your house and your city gates. Let there be a verbal commitment to God's word. This means that you are going to teach the scriptures to your kids. And when you get to teaching the scriptures to your kids, one point of advice, don't just teach them the stories of the Bible. Teach them the storyline of the Bible. Don't just teach them the stories because you can take a story and you can moralize it in a way that won't serve their soul well. Teach them the storyline of Scripture that centers on the gospel, that centers on sinners in need of grace and redemption. Teach the storyline of the Bible. And there are wonderful resources that can help you do that, not least of which is the Jesus Storybook Bible by Sally Lloyd-Jones. I would highly encourage that one. And there are others that are coming out in very similar vein to help us teach our kids the storyline, not just the stories of the Bible. When you're teaching the Scriptures, you also want to take time to warn them against Sin. Take time to warn them against things that do not honor God, things that do not bless others. Warn them against that. You want to have a verbal commitment to God's word, but you would go one step further. Not just a verbal commitment. If we're going to teach the next generation these realities, we must give a visible commitment to God's word. Meaning it's not, just, it's not enough for us to educate. We must, we must demonstrate the realities of the gospel so that our kids can see, not only are we talking about the scriptures, we're trying to apply the scriptures to our own lives. Not only are we talking about Jesus, we're actively trying to follow Jesus. So there's a verbal commitment, but there's a visible commitment. Our kids are seeing us do the things that Jesus is calling us to do. I'll illustrate it this way. Let me ask all of you to take your hands and just form a circle just like this and hold it out right in front of you. Just hold your circle right out in front of you and out. I want you to take that circle and I want you to put it right there on your cheek. Now, every one of you have your circle on your chin, but did anybody hear what I said? I said to take that circle and to put it on your cheek. And I don't think a single person went to their cheek. I think every one of you went to your chin. Why is that? Because, well, you know that actions speak louder than words. You knew that people hear what you do before they hear what you say. And when it comes to raising the next generation, we want to be mindful of that so we're not just verbally 
declaring truth. We're visibly demonstrating truth in the home and in the church. We're embodying the realities of the gospel because our kids will certainly see what we, they will hear what we do before they hear what we say. And I know in my short stint as a father that that can come back to bite you real quick as my kids see too much. Now, uh, we want to teach and instruct children to know God's word. And then also, if we're going to be disciple-making disciples of Christ, we want to encourage children to obey God's word. Not only do we want to educate them, we want them to be shaped. We want them to grow in their obedience to God's word. This is what the training portion is speaking at in verse 4. Instruction is kind of the education. Training is how do you live this out? How do you obey the things that you're learning so that you embody them? Now, if we're going to encourage children to obey God's word, we've got to learn to target the heart. That it is not enough for you to deal with external behavior or to engage in the behavior modification of your children. Now, I'm not saying that behavior modification has no place whatsoever. I'm saying behavior modification is entirely insufficient for what you're ultimately called to do. In other words, you don't want to just take the fruit of the Holy Spirit and staple them onto your kid's life. That won't be a part of them. That won't be who they are. You don't want to staple the fruit of the Spirit onto them. You want to see the fruit of the Spirit blossom out of them. And the only way you can do that is by targeting the heart. Meaning you have to peel back the layers and be willing to deal with things like values, be willing to deal with things like beliefs, be willing to deal with things like feelings, be willing to deal with things like motives. You've got to go deeper in your relationship with little ones. You can't just talk to them about what they should be doing and how they should be doing it. When they go off course, you want to help them process, why did I make that decision? Why did I go in that direction? Asking the question why is a huge question in in our arsenal. Now, if you've ever been around kids two or three years of age, you know they ask question, the question why a lot. Almost to the point they're asking this all the time that a parent wants to pull their hair out because they don't know how to answer those questions. Well, they're asking that because I think that's God's way of cueing us into the reality of the heart. That we too need to be asking that same question of them. We, too, must be exploring those same dynamics in them, helping them to ask the question why when it comes to the choices that they're making and the things that they're doing, what's driving them to do that. And I know it's hard, and I know it's not easy, especially when you're dealing with a three-year-old, but I think we must begin moving them in that direction, helping them assess kind of where they are and why they are in a given moment. So we want to target the heart. And when you target the heart, you're ultimately targeting the heart so that you can talk about the gospel. You target the heart so that you can get to the gospel. If you're only focused on behavior modification, you don't need the gospel. You're never going to get there because you can modify behavior and they can do the right things, but their heart can remain far from God. And that's, that's losing in parenting. We don't want that. So we target the heart so that we can get to the gospel. I had this conversation with Adeline. Adeline's three a couple of days ago, and she's had a habit lately of, of lying, and she's been lying to Kim and I, and we notice it, and we can tell, and we know that she's lying, and we've been trying to figure out how to navigate this in her and what to do with her heart. And so we sat her down finally, and we began to ask her about it. And I said, I said Adeline, do you know why we want you to tell the truth? And she said, why? I said, uh, well... I said, because you were, you were created by a truth-telling God. And you were created to show people what God is like. And when you lie, when you deceive us, you're not doing that very well. She said, okay, Dad. 
It wasn't a lot of conviction in that moment, but I think it was a good truth to lay down. But then I went one step further, and I said, Adeline, I want you to know the, the fact that you do lie and the fact that Daddy has lied and Mommy has lied, this is why we need Jesus. This in us, the fact that we don't do what we were created to do, this is why God sent Jesus into the world to do the things that we could not do. And so Jesus came, and he lived a life where he told the truth all the time. I said, can you imagine telling the truth all the time? No. Well, Jesus did. He told the truth all the time, and then it led him to the cross where he would give up his life. And do you know why Jesus died on the cross? He went on to say that Jesus died on the cross to basically take your time out for lying. He went to the cross to pay the penalty for your deceit, to pay the punishment for your sin. I didn't go into this round with her, but basically I stuck with the time out dynamic. He basically took her place in time out. And she began to think about that. And then I said, "Then you know that after Jesus died on the cross, he didn't stay dead, but he actually rose from the grave. And that means that we can be forgiven for the lies that we tell. We can have relationship with God restored, and we can show the world what God is like, not because we tell the truth all the time, but we can show the world what God is like because we need, we need Jesus, and we go to Jesus. Now, I'd love to say that the angel started singing, and there was a wonderful transformation moment in the life of my three-year-old in that moment. There wasn't, but that was the approach. And, and I think, I think. Sowing that seed constantly, targeting the heart, talking about the gospel, planting those seeds, watering those seeds. Over time, I'm trusting, I'm trusting that it will bear fruit, that it will bear fruit in her life and it will bear fruit in the lives of our little ones. We want to encourage children to obey God's word. And what it means at its core to obey God's word is to trust in Jesus. What it means to obey God's word is to believe in Jesus. Jesus. Jesus would teach this all throughout the Gospel of John. Jesus would teach this when, or the Father would teach this when he would look at the disciples and he would say, this is my beloved son, listen to him. Trust in him, do what he says. So obeying God's word means to trust in Jesus and that's the ultimate goal of parenting. We want to lead our kids to put their faith in the Savior so that they're not living their lives trying to save themselves. And they're living their lives not to justify themselves in any discernible way. And this is a huge calling. This is a huge task. This is one that we want to embrace and we want to engage with everything that we are. So that when we come to the end of our days and we stand before the Lord and we might hear those words, well done, good and faithful servant. You've stewarded well what I've given you. That we'd be able to say that as moms and say that as dads. That we'd be able to say that as a church, well done, good and faithful servants. You have stewarded well what I've entrusted to you. You have been faithful with the task of raising little ones in the instruction and the training of the Lord. Now, I'll be honest with you. Over about a 10-year span, there's approximately 75,000 books are written on parenting in this country. It's a ridiculously overwhelming thing. You want to make some money? Write a book on parenting. But I hate reading every one of them. I don't re like reading books on parenting. I don't really like teaching on parenting because every time I do, I'm reminded of how far short I fall of the ideal, how far short I fall of God's standard, how unfaithful I am in so many ways. I'm reminded of that every time I approach a topic like this. So quite frankly, I don't like doing it. 
And I can respond to that moment in one of two ways. I can respond by taking my feeling of weakness, my feeling of inadequacies, and I can hide them. I can stuff them in the back and pretend that they don't exist and just go about my day. Or I can disclose them, and I can in some ways boast in them and brag in them, believing what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, that God's grace is sufficient for us. His power is perfected in our weaknesses. And so I can bring out my weaknesses, I can bring out my inadequacies, I can bring out my failures as a father and trust that God's grace is sufficient for me even in those moments. And I believe that God's grace is sufficient for each and every one of you in your weakest, worst moments of your life. When you are not faithfully doing the role that God has called and created you to fulfill, when you are not being who God has created you to be, there is grace for you. And so we don't want to hide our weaknesses and hide our inadequacies. No, we want to bring them out and we want to see that God's grace is sufficient for us even in those moments. Otherwise, some of you may never move towards becoming parents because you're gonna think, well, I had such a terrible example in my life growing up, I don't know how to do this or how to go about parenting another child and so you have no desire perhaps because you're afraid. And I would encourage you, don't let fear control you. Let the perfect love of the gospel cast out that fear. Recognize that God perfects his power in our weaknesses. His grace is sufficient for us, whether we feel like we're killing it in parenting or being killed in our parenting, whether we're killing it in kids' ministry or being killed in kids' ministry. God's grace, I hope that doesn't happen, is sufficient for us all the way, all the way through. And so we need the grace of the gospel, and we want to press into it. And one other final thought that I would give you is I want you to know that nobody justifies themselves by being a great parent. Being a great mom or a great dad is not your justification. Your justification is found in Christ alone. You are declared right with God, not by how well you execute your roles in this life. You are declared right with God by how well Jesus lived the life that you could not live and he died the death you deserve to die and he rose from the grave to give you salvation and eternal life and hope and joy in him. That's the source of your justification. So do not locate your identity to your role, whether it's as a mom or a dad, a husband or a wife, whether it's as a professional or whatever the case may be. Do not locate your identity and your justification in any place or any person other than Christ himself. This is why we can engage a topic like parenting like no other people can in this world. We can engage it with humility, knowing that we have a lot to learn. We can engage it with joy, knowing that we have a lot of hope for the process because we have a God who is gracious and we have a God who is merciful and we are trusting him every step of the way. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, would you...